0: You're listening to the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King.
1: Hello, we've got a cracker for you today. In part one, I'm joined by the Lodestars, Alex Nain, and Zenitors, Peter Sand as we examine the latest rate movements decipher the peak season and try and work out exactly what is going on at Flexport. And in part two, we've got an exclusive interview with possibly the world's most powerful container shipping regulator, its chairman of the US Federal Maritime Commission,
0: Daniel Maffey. This isn't a game of gotcha, it's a game of trying to make sure that everybody plays by the same rules and that if you're given a yellow card, you change your behavior so you're not given a red card. We're not interested in putting people out of business because if we do that then competition is less and that's worse for the shippers and consumers because prices go up so we want to send the right message but we want a healthy industry
1: hello everybody i'm mike king welcome to the lodestar podcast as ever before we get going i've said it before and i'll say it again you can find this podcast on all platforms please give us a great review and follow us if you would We're also on theloadstar.com where you can follow breaking supply chain stories from around the world, every day indeed. And you can contact me with thoughts and theories on mikeking121 at gmail.com. As trailed in part two, we've got an exclusive interview with the Federal Maritime Commission chairman, Daniel Maffey. And I can promise you he is insightful and also very good value. So if you're wondering where the world of container shipping regulation is going, what happens next on detention demorage, please sit tight. But first up, and with no further ado, let me introduce my two guests as we look at the latest news and freight trends. Returning once more to this shire, it's the man seeking a Harry Kane t-shirt as he tries to make sense of being Danish, but supporting a German football team now dominated and led by an Englishman. It's Zenita chief analyst, Peter Sand. Hello, Peter.
2: I'm A Pleasure as always. And
1: joining Peter today is no less than Lodestar Publisher and Chief Air Cargo Nerd. It's Alex Lenane. Welcome back, Alex.
3: Hi, Mike.
1: Alex, uh, let's start with you if we can. And part of me doesn't want to go here, but I think we will. It's Flexport. Um, there's a lot to unravel. And I wasn't even sure where to start, but it has to be, I guess, Ryan Peterson. The founder is now back in control where uh, the Amazonification, Amazonification, or Flexport. Is it over? Because Dave Clark's now quit only months after taking the, the reins as a CEO all by himself. It didn't really last long. What, what happened, Alex? Come on, tell us.
3: Well, yeah, it's been, it's been quite the drama. And, you know, everybody loves to hate Flexport, so it's, it's been even more fun, to be honest. It appears that, that Dave Clark wasn't keeping as close an eye on cost as Flexport would have liked. Um, perhaps in a different market, market that might not have been quite so important. But the information recently published that Flexport's revenue fell seventy percent in the first half of this year to seven hundred million, that's about double the percentage fall seen at, say, DSV. While well, the company has apparently burned through rather a lot of its cash, that could be because Mr. Clark's hired a number of senior executives from Amazon, presumably at decent salaries. Maybe at Amazon, he didn't need to look at the bottom line quite so closely. But I think that's essentially what it's about. Too much cost and trying to refocus.
1: I did actually ask Ryan Peterson if he wanted to come on and discuss all this, but I never heard back, unfortunately. Ryan, if you're listening, and I know you do sometimes, you're welcome any time. Way more fun than CNBC, honestly. Alex, it was only earlier this year, as you alluded there, that we had... This acceleration of this Amazonification, we had all these high profile executives joining uh, Flexport. We also had this much heralded deal for Shopify Logistics and Deliver, which was like a move into e-commerce, middle mile and last mile services, which really it had Dave Clark's fingerprints all over it. Peterson's now talking about refocusing on the core freight business. Was, I think that was the phrase that was used. What does he mean by this? Where do you expect this to go from now? Oh,
3: it's, it's very difficult. You'd think by looking at it that with the Amazon executives gone, maybe they, they might rethink about their e-commerce plans. But Flexport seems convinced that they're going to continue along this line. I mean, it's, it's come about as Shopify has also allowed Amazon to uh, do some of its deliveries, So it's not quite as clear-cut as it was. But when I spoke to Flexport in May, they insisted that Shopify and its e-commerce deliver has always been on the cards and it's no change in strategy. But now you're, you are wondering, Brian Peterson has said that their core focus should be on, on their freight customers and being customer centric. And so, so the B2C issue may be a little bit too far for them, but I, I, we're just going to have to wait and see what they do. We've It's very hard to tell with Flexport. We don't know how much trouble they're really in.
1: We might see a redefinition of what core freight business means. Let's see. Well, watch this page. Uh, it feels a bit wrong tagging this on at the end, but Flexport seems to may as well have its own news channel at the moment. Uh, as the Lodestar reported, Mr. Peterson also managed to fire some 75 new appointments
3: over Twitter, apparently. Sounds rather brutal, Alex. Did that really happen? It did really happen. It was a weirdly public way of saying things, to be honest. And I, I, it's very hard to understand why you do that on Twitter. But um, he wrote on Twitter, There's no way around it. We've had a hiring freeze for months. I've no idea why more than 75 people were signed to join or why we had over 200 open roles on our website. He then said they cancelled all these job offers. I hope you will forgive us someday. Um, Some of this new staff were due to join on the Monday and this Twitter announcement was made on the Friday. And he also seemed to put up Flexport's office buildings for, for sale or for lease. Like I said, it was just such an odd thing to do in public. Maybe someone who understands PR can explain it to me. But it seemed to add more smoke to the fire that always seems to surround Flexbook. But yeah, I had to say, it was a riveting few days. Certainly riveting. Can we have something positive from you, Mr.
1: Sand? Have you got anything? What's going on in container shipping markets? <laughs> Are you still mulling over the debris of the peak season? Come on, give me something positive.
2: The Oktoberfest is wild and raging at the moment and Bayern <laughs> is winning throughout. So uh, so that's something to to take away. On top of, of course, uh, lower spot rates for basically trades across the board. But as always, there are no two trades that are alike. So if we focus just on the drop of spot rates from Far East to North Europe in the past month, they are down 25%. Narrowing a bit of the gap uh, also to uh, Far East to Mediterranean, something that we have also discussed before, where we saw that gap to be abnormal. But things are moving in the right direction for shippers again, following some smooth move and some smart moves by the carriers uh, over the summer where they really did whatever they could in order to manage capacity successfully. But it seems as if against gravity, even carriers fight in despair. So there is something to look forward to for shippers also in the coming months with, say, a renewed downward pressure on rates.
1: Well, it's been a funny few weeks, isn't it? Where we would expect uh, spot rates to be increasing. And if we go back to the beginning of September, maybe everyone was saying that carriers hadn't blanked enough capacity. And then all of a sudden, as the month has wore on, and we're talking 25th of September, we did have these sort of last minute capacity cuts as we come into Golden Week, when, of course, all those factories in, in China shut down and they might be shutting down for a bit longer than normal this time round. What happens after? Golden week in that first week of October. What what are you expecting from carriers and what should shippers expect?
2: Yeah, as as always, I I think we can look at carriers' actions with a sense of why, what, and why not. And we can do so uh, not only in the most recent weeks, but also going forward. In the most recent weeks, it seems as if they've stopped doing what worked so well for them over the summer, where they cut capacity quite dramatically, especially on, on TransPAC. They stopped doing that literally for a number of weeks now and we have seen the effect instantly with spot rates literally going flat sliding a bit but going into uh, to golden weekend and of course in the week right after golden week so so literally for a normal calendar that would be the second week of october uh, we have seen capacity being blanked or sailings being blank to the extent of 40 to 50 percent when compared to what was earlier announced of course shippers will be aware of the fact that carriers do announce a lot of sailing and a lot of capacity that, in essence, even in a fairly normal market, will never be 100% utilized in the end. But with a, quite a short notice, which is also a, a bit of the, uh, the trick behind what carriers do, especially in current markets, they come out with blank sailings galore, that's something with a few weeks in advance. So, so I think when we look at the Transpac, we got what 18 sailings planked uh, for the uh, second week of October. Half that for Far East to Europe, but definitely something that they do in order just to make sure that uh, that rates do not fall off a cliff once we get on the other side of Golden Week. Because in the run up to Golden Week, what we have seen now, and I think I've also been out talking a, a little bit with say a warning slash say uh, thinking around what could be a normal lift in rates for the second half of September here as carriers outsmarted shippers on jump trades. Fortunately, we have not seen that. So carriers are entering the golden week wrong-footed and actually seeing rates falling in the final uh, week or weeks leading up to golden week. So so come about in a few weeks uh, where we have seen uh, the other side of golden week, it's expected to be a weak market at that point in time. And we also see long-term contract rates in the wake of that, of course, trending down when spot markets cannot keep up.
1: Can you explain a little bit about the interaction between spot rates and long-term contracts and how, how that affects carrier strategy? They don't want their biggest customers on these long-term contracts often to be paying more than those people who are coming into the market ad hoc on spot contracts, do they? So that's one of the reasons they want to try and push these freight rates up. It's not just about the, the bottom line on a spot rate.
2: I think in essence, all carriers would love just to run efficiently with contract volumes only, literally, because then they could plan well in advance. They could do whatever they do the best, optimize logistics, lower their cost, and make a decent profit. I mean, it's a hassle for everyone working in the spot market, be it a carrier or a shipper, because that's just so much more work, uh, literally, on, on the back of uh, what is the exactly the same transport of cargo from one port to the next, right? So in essence, if you're a big shipper, you're always spread uh, between long and short. But uh, but the way it literally works, it's a little bit uh, simple mechanics in, in this way, uh, especially around tendering season, which in essence is around the clock, uh, around the world, around the year. So we do have very few specific tender seasons around uh, anymore uh, in, in that sense. So that's basically what you see when carriers still simplify, going into to the end of the year, where especially in North Europe is looking at a tender season, they lift the spot rates if they can do in order literally just to tell shippers that are about to sign that, hey, I mean, the alternative to not signing a new long-term deal because we're not signing it at, at the current level is the spot market, which is much higher. And that, of course, leverage a little bit of the negotiation power of the carriers going into to the negotiation room. The higher the spot rates, uh, the better in, in comparison to long-term. So that's simple, say, mechanics working in the favor of the carriers when the spot market is higher. And of course, vice versa, if it's the other way around, like we've seen it so many times when rates started to fall off a cliff uh, one year ago. We basically saw shippers really being in the driving seat because long rates were just constantly being above the short market. So so they were really uh, getting an opportunity to, uh, say, negotiate lower rates uh, if they went into a long-term contract at all, at least. So uh, not for one year, but for one quarter, as they kind of like managed risk in that smart way.
1: And that'll be very interesting in the Asia-Europe trade as we come into the turn of year when a lot of those contracts are renegotiated. I'll come back to you in a moment, Peter. I want to just get your view on what happens in the run-up to Chinese New Year. But Alex, you were attending the Air Cargo Handling and Logistics Conference in Athens last week. What was the uh, general feeling about the, the fourth quarter
3: from that particular audience? Any optimism for a peak as we come into the holiday season? Not really, no, to be fair. You know, e-commerce is now quite a stable line of business for the airlines and there'll be a bit of a pickup now before Christmas, but no one's really expecting any particular peak season. I mean, there are, there are little pockets of good trade loans. Last week, Vietnam, out of Vietnam, suddenly saw a bit of a surge, partly perhaps because of the launch of the iPhone 15. Forwarders are saying that there could be some impact from the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. But, yeah, in general, the market is expected to stay soft. A boost from
1: Nagorno-Karabakh. Okay. Uh, so it sounds a bit like the ocean market, really,
3: Alex. Uh, very bearish. It it is a bit, yeah. Um, According to the tech index, China-Europe rates went up 6.4% last week. So that's something, but China-US has fallen very slightly and the overall index itself has stayed broadly flat. Key indexes and markets outbound from Heathrow, Frankfurt, Shanghai, Hong Kong, they've all stayed the same or fallen a bit. Singapore's outbound index, interestingly, fell more than 15% in the last week. I'm not quite sure why yet, but I will find out. Outbound Chicago is the only one that's risen a bit, went up 8.8%. So there are different things happening on different trade lanes, but overall, it's dull. And uh, back to the show, Alex, what
1: were your main takeaways from from this conference? Any key ideas, thoughts, strategies emerging?
3: Was it a good show? It was a good show. Yeah, it was well attended. It's always good to catch up with people. I mean, this particular event is quite focused on ground services and technology, but There were some great panel discussions on e-commerce, sustainability. One thing about tech that really stuck out was when airlines thought that the shipping lines were further ahead with them and implementing new technologies. I just can't believe that's true, but maybe it is. It was an interesting show, yeah.
1: One of the the key trends we saw during the pandemic when there was such a run-on air cargo space was forwarders securing their own capacity. And one of your stories from the conference, one of your excellent stories, in fact, focused on whether this would continue in a muted market or or not. Presumably, it depends on
3: who you're talking to. Well, we've been talking to lots of forwarders recently about their own controlled networks. And it was really interesting to hear DB Schenker talk about theirs at at this event. It looks like most of them are, are, are definitely decreasing the amount of capacity that they have. But those that have their own controlled networks want to retain at least some specific trade lanes, which are specifically required by customers. I mean, D.B. Schenker made the point very well that it's very hard to keep flights profitable at the moment. And I think the forwarders are starting to feel that somewhat. The other interesting thing was that we heard from MSC Air Cargo. And as I'm sure you know, Mike, MSC is not usually a chatty company. So it was quite interesting to hear from them for a change. They were mostly keen to get across the idea that they sell to forwarders. And they're not trying to pinch anyone's business, which is a normal topic of conversation in the new environment. And MSC talked about why they wanted air services, which was just to ensure that they could offer customers an all-rounded approach. So, yeah, it was an interesting chat about how air Cargo is going to be offered and sold over the next couple of years. But I don't think there will be much change. I think the forwarders are going to keep involved. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Peter?
1: What's uh, your outlook for container markets then? I think we've got a general gist of what you thought through the final quarter. For those hoping for a, an increase in spot rates, so the carriers basically, are we looking at Chinese New Year 2024? Is that the first chance we're going to have for a proper uptick in the market? Or maybe there's something in the macroeconomic stars that I've missed that you think might help on the demand front?
2: I think. The short reply to that is we have to wait. Patience is required for all participants in the market space. I think it's, uh, it's very fair to mirror what uh, Alex just said in terms of the air cargo market. We see quite a weak level of demand for uh, transportation needs in October. So, uh, so without doubt, if, if that's weak for ocean, it will be perhaps even weaker for air, connecting the dots as we do at, at Suneta. But if we are looking at not only the Chinese Lunar New Year, I think one trade, if I may go left field for a moment, far east to North Europe, that is really under pressure at the moment. So if you were looking for a surprise, a decent surprise in the spot market before we get to January, that could be, I wouldn't call it a rebound, but at least uh, picking uh, rates up from sub $1,000 per FAU in the spot market, uh, which is being offered right now out of China into North Europe. Because it's really, it it seems as if it's oversold at the moment. So if carriers really get their act together, if they continue managing capacity also on the other side of Golden Week plus one, which is uh, like the second half of October into November and December, I think that could be in for something also, as we alluded to before, it is uh, the, the next focus point for carriers to manage capacity to its largest extent. So watch out for Far East to North Europe, because it could be one of the traits that defies gravity for a short while before we get into January. And I guess for January as such, that's, again, I mean, we are looking at a traditional peak season. We're looking at January where normally you move goods ahead of the uh, the Chinese Lunar New Year, uh, late January or early February, wherever it sits, come 2024. But will it be different this time around? I think the lessons has been learned also for the, um, say, pre of the current Q3 peak season should not be surprised by someone still being rattled, someone still being late. That could temporarily lift or at least bring around volatility to some trades. But then again, I mean, you know me, I'm a fundamentalist in that uh, that regard. You cannot fight the tide all the time. So with the uh, flow of tonnage increasing every single day, beating that of demand every single day also. Carriers really need to find some uh, magic ones if they want to uh, turn around that market and make it profitable because it's not profitable right now. There's still several weeks and month from now until uh, Chinese and New Year, but if you're looking for some more, say decisive turn in the market beyond the expected volatility in the meantime, Chinese and New Year or the early weeks of January is, uh, is what you, uh, you should keep uh, your eyes focused on.
1: So container shipping needs Harry Potter. Great headline. Next up, I'm talking to Federal Maritime Commission Chairman Daniel Maffey about regulations. And if you'd like a football analogy, do hang around because I promise we actually do go there. But for now, Peter Sand, Alex Lenane, thank you for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast.
2: You're welcome.
3: Thanks, Mike.
1: Welcome to part two of the Lodestar podcast, when we're deep diving into maritime regulations, especially from a US perspective. To do so, I'd like to welcome someone who I think it would be fair to say is at the top of the regulatory tree and in charge of an ever-growing caseload and employee payroll, as well as a bunch of new powers thanks to the supply chain chaos that massively disrupted US industry during the pandemic. I'm delighted to welcome to the Lodestar podcast the former two-term Democrat congressman and chairman of the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission, Daniel Maffey. Hello, Daniel. Hello to you, Mike, and it's good to be on the podcast. Daniel, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Just to explain a little bit about the FMC for our listeners, it's a federal agency, but not part of the government, and you act entirely independently, judging cases that come before you. And you took the chair in 2021, and not long after... The FMC's role in Maritime Affairs stepped up a number of notches thanks to the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022. So I'm thinking maybe a good place to start would be if you could explain what OSRA has meant for the FMC, why that came about and what sort of budgets and powers
0: it's given you. Absolutely. One quick uh, clarification. We are technically part of the executive branch. So we are part of the Biden administration, but our terms don't correspond with the president and we're bipartisan. So we have currently two Republicans, three Democrats and our decisions are are made independently. So, But we are part of the same budgetary structure. Uh, if the government shuts down next month, we'll shut down too. <laughs> so uh, clarifying that. In terms of coming in, so yes, obviously COVID and the subsequent import boom in the United States and in Europe completely changed uh, the, the political landscape for ocean shipping in many ways it basically strained the supply chain to an extent that it didn't break. And I think that's very important. Uh, while we can complain about various things, we also have to acknowledge that it really, it never did break. People were still getting things the entire time. However, the congestion, the, the various issues that it caused exposed weaknesses in the system, both in terms of regulation, certainly in terms of infrastructure, certainly in terms of you know where people are working and and that sort of thing. And in terms of the regulatory side, uh, that could be addressed. It could be addressed by the US Congress. And there was certainly a coalition that wanted that addressed. We can go more into that if you like, but importers, exporters, uh, truckers, um, intermediaries, a a whole vast group that came to Congress and said, "You know, we need to do something about some of this stuff that we think is unfair. And Congress in the United States, and if this surprises you, don't worry, it would surprise a lot of Americans, acted very, very quickly. And the president signed a bill and that very much changed us. It didn't completely change our mandate or anything like that, but it did give us additional resources and additional capabilities, authorities, if you will, in order to execute our mission of protecting the public from unfair practices and trying to promote an efficient market for international ocean commerce. As you say,
1: I mean, this was the speed with which that legislation
0: was passed was down to the higher costs that industry was bearing, right? I think so, I think some of it had to do with members of Congress not making the perfect the enemy of the good to get to consensus. It was a it, you know extraordinarily bipartisan piece of legislation in a increasingly partisan world here in in the nation's capital in Washington. So I think there were a lot of. A lot of things that were done right—that you know—you you only read about when things are done done wrong and legislation falls apart. This came together well, but it also a lot of the sponsors, particularly the House sponsors, didn't get everything they wanted and said, "Well, okay, fine, we'll live to fight another day and we'll come back." It was the first major ocean shipping overhaul in almost twenty-five years. It certainly did not re-regulate the ocean shipping system as as some argued it would but I also think it was more than just window dressing. It did appreciably change our function and the way I would describe it, and I'll use a a more British, a Liverpool, a more Liverpool friendly analogy. (laughs) Very kind. It's it's like a soccer game, I'm sorry, it's like a football game where in the past the rules would be set by a rulemaking body, but there would be no referees on the pitch during the game. Now we are there. We are there calling the yellow cards and the red cards active during the game, not taking part in the game, but able to be more of a presence throughout the, the ocean supply chain.
1: Well, using the same analogy, and, and thanks for the Liverpool reference, we're having a better season this year. That's for kind of you to mention it. Are you purely a referee or are you also a, an enforcer? Are you the hard man on, on the pitch as well that goes in and, and lays down
0: these laws or maybe breaks a leg or two? No, we certainly don't break any legs you I mean yes we you know like i said we we call it we call the shots and we uh, you know investigate issues and if necessary we execute penalties but i will say this we're fine with settlements right we we're not playing a game of gotcha okay the industry that we regulate whether we're talking about ocean carriers or whether we're talking about terminal operators or whether we're talking about freight forwarders or others this is an essential industry it is absolutely essential for the economy. I view my job as, you know, not going after the bad guys. I don't see good guys and bad guys. I see good and bad behavior, and we want to incentivize better behavior, and we want to do it on a level playing field. So no one is punished for doing the right thing, you know, by having added costs compared to their competitors.
1: So would I be right to say that a fine is then? It's not the weapon of choice.
0: It's it's the, the last resort. You'd rather a settlement. Uh, yeah, well, when we shuttle, sometimes there's fairly large fines, but if you look at the size of the companies, particularly when, you know, these ocean shipping lines, it's not that the fine is is particularly, you know, people say they a slap on the wrist or something, but they do care about their images, particularly in their home countries. There are a lot of reasons why, if we send the right signals, if we set the, the right incentives, if we create the right deterrence, it, it will be a much better system. The issue with detention and demurrage, Is not that detention and demerge, and I'll describe what they are, just uh, these are fees, often late fees for either not picking up a full box or not dropping off your empty box on time. For DM charges, they're sometimes called. The issue with those is not that they're bad. In fact, they're important in order to move cargo, right? You want to create incentives so that people don't leave their box and in the yard clogging things up at a port or in a warehouse. You want to make sure the equipment gets returned properly, et cetera, so the next person can use it, right? These are good things. But the system was at least the perception of shippers very broadly here in the United States before the pandemic, certainly during the pandemic, went up to 11 was that these were being abused to make even more money and it didn't have anything really to do with moving cargo. And as a result, the system lost credibility and many shippers, they just thought that, well, this is cost of doing business so I'm gonna to have to pay these fees. I'll just budget it and I won't necessarily be able to change that. And we had to restore credibility to that system. So that's one of the things I'm talking about in terms of regulation is just to make sure there's a level playing field and that there's sufficient enforcement so that there, there's a deterrent to losing the purpose of some of these uh, important charges, but also you can abuse them.
1: As you say, you know, the idea of detention and demurrage is nothing wrong with it. The idea is to keep the cargo and the equipment moving, but the incentives to do so fell apart during the pandemic just because of the sheer pressure on that U.S. logistics system. But did you think, and I think you use this phrase yourself, that detention and demurrage charges became revenue centers for lines. Was this about big corporations bullying the little guy, shippers in the US or even the big guys. And maybe I can add a second question to that. How are you gonna stop this happening again?
0: Yeah, the first question, all I can sort of say is there were certainly complaints that I think there was sufficient evidence that there was abuse, let me just sort of say that. I don't think it's my job to judge motives or any of that kind of stuff. Companies are under pressure to make money for their shareholders, and it's up to us to make sure that everybody you know follows the rules so that nobody can get away with something. In terms of going into the future, look, I, I think, first of all, our caseload has gone up and our cases settled and a number of them. Look, for years and years, the FMC did not go after carriers on anything, right? I mean, uh, or terminal operators or any of the big players, our investigative units, in my view, spent... Way too much time going after small, medium-sized freight forwarders and similar on you know, things that were important to be compliant with in terms of the rules, but, but not necessarily where you would want to spend your enforcement dollars, I think, if you're a taxpayer wanting a, a good ocean a shipping supply system. So we changed that, and now we're doing that, and, and I think the carriers are getting the message. I, shippers have certainly seen better behavior. A lot of the stuff that we find in our audits, which is a way of like looking at the the nine major carriers and having a dialogue with them that they cooperate in, but they tell us what they're doing in their various practices. And we sort of give them some input as to whether we think that that's fully compliant or how they can do better or that sort of thing. All of those things I think have improved the industry. Now, look, the market has been a big part of that too, right? Uh, A year and a half ago, the supply was at a minimum, uh, well, it wasn't at a minute. It was the same as it, frankly, it was, it was the same. It was a little bit less than today because new ships are coming online, but the demand was was sky high. Now it's flipped around the other way. So that has a lot to do with not getting as many complaints now, although actually we're getting more complaints, but a lot of them go back to that that time uh, of congestion and we still can adjudicate many of those. So that's where we are. Again, it's not a revolution, but it is, a, a, in my view, a steady presence on the field, making sure that everybody plays by the same rules and hopefully they're good and decent and fair rules.
1: Can you explain a little bit how you decide the size of the fines perhaps that have been levied, which are in tens of millions of dollars that have been imposed on some I just want to just put that in perspective because I think the the size of the detention demorage charges, I think by a few estimates, including from your fellow commissioners, is in the billions. For the container lines who've sort of racked up like two decades worth of profits in a year, 10 million it's a price worth paying. Do you think there's a a balance there? I do.
0: I I mean I do, and because again, detention demurrage, until we adjudicate it, we don't know whether it was it was fair or unfair, reasonable or unreasonable. Certainly during the pandemic, I'm comfortable saying a lot of those charges were unreasonable, maybe more than normal, because there were several reasons why the ocean shippers simply couldn't get it. We talk about the incentive principle, a charge is reasonable if it can incentivize picking up that container or not. But I think the the less controversial example is if the, there's a blizzard and you can't pick up their, your containers because the port is closed, you can't be charged for those days. And we just try to apply that principle. But again, our job is to set the right message, set the right deterrent. And one thing the Ocean Shipping Reform Act did is it does allow us to file a case as the FMC and get some reparations for the complainant. And so that's very important. We didn't have that power before. We now always, and continuing today, the complaint can file a private complaint, just like a, a civil court. But for those who didn't have the resources to do that or whatever, I think that's very, very important. In terms of the penalty, we need it to be enough that it deters future behavior. And that's what we we aim to do. A lot of our settlements also include pledges of okay, we've changed our practices so that they will now comply and here's evidence of that and you will continue to monitor us, those sort of things. So again, this isn't a game of gotcha. It's a game of trying to make sure that everybody plays by the same rules and that if you're given a yellow card, you change your behavior so you're not given a red card. We're not interested in putting people out of business because if we do that, then competition is less and that's worse for the shippers and consumers because prices go up. So we want to send the right message, but we want a healthy industry.
1: I think probably maybe unfairly on on shipping lines I might have characterized it all as about container lines versus shippers and it, it's not as simple as that I know during the pandemic you're you've been asked to judge on everything you know right up and down the supply chain railroads forwarders everything do you now have the budget and and the employee staff to handle this caseload
0: well we're better than we were before I mean we are we, a very <laughs> we're a very small agency over on the U S government. At the moment, I, I'm not asking Congress for more resources. I've you know keep the same level uh, as they promised in the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. But I'm not asking for more resources because it's and you simply can't hire the people any quicker who have the kind of skills and knowledge and and uh, capability to learn because it's, you know fairly rare to find anybody who understands ocean shipping as much the the commercial aspects as much as this agency needs it. So we we have that. That hiring stuff, we're trying to make sure that when we have people on board, they're taking action and making a difference. So do we have enough? Could we use more? Probably. There are uh, areas where some are calling for regulation. You mentioned railroads. So we have a jurisdiction over the container if it's going to or coming from the ocean. And so in the case of a carrier haulage, we do maintain jurisdiction, you know, even beyond the water's edge. But it doesn't mean that we uh, have the power to regulate railroads. We're not allowed to find the railroad. We are allowed to find the ocean carrier and and say, well, you should tell your railroads not to to act this way. There are some calls that we should have direct input on the rails. Um, Would you like to? Would you like that power? Well, you know, again, they taught me in policy school, if you ever run an agency, you try to get more and more power. So I don't know. I guess I learned the lesson wrong because I'm not sure if if that would make sense for us or not. I will say it would certainly take a lot more resources than we have contemplated if we start to get into that sort of thing. And there are other agencies of government who maybe could do it better. I'm not for a power grab, but I'm also, you know, I mean. You're not saying no. (laughs) Look, it's not my decision to make. It's Congress's decision. I will try to. And the president and I will try to uh, execute it as well as I can. And all I know is my agency. I don't know other agencies, right? I know some about the rail industry, but nowhere near as much as I know about ocean shipping. So sometimes you just admit that you're not the biggest expert in the room. I want to come back to some of that legislation that's coming through Congress
1: and, and also your role on the White House Competition Council in a moment. Just if we can, back to those detention and demurrage rules. Have you got new rules that you, are you do you want to change those rules? Are you, you're formulating new rules as far as I understand it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What do
0: they mean? What's the purpose? Yes. So first of all, uh, what the Ocean Shipping Reform Act did, and I think there is a little bit of misunderstanding on this. And there were even colloquies on the floors of the houses of Congress talking about it. The Ocean Shipping Reform Act basically put into law uh, or gave the force of law to a regulation that we'd already passed authored by my colleague, Rebecca Dye, but got unanimous support, including myself at the time, to create this incentive principle for things like detention and deburrage. I already described it with a blizzard or whatever, but it means that essentially we'll judge whether a fee is reasonable or not, and therefore legal or not, if it can move cargo, if it contributes to this movement of cargo, if it is simply to raise revenue, then no, that is not an acceptable fee. You should put that in your rate. Right. We want in a way this all it all leads to uh, the market works when uh, rates are transparent, when you know what you're getting for the price. So it's all a similar principle. But anyway, that is how we would judge detention to merge. The law reinforced that and said, OK, you've, you've got the right tree. You have the right tree trunk. We'd like to see more leaves on the tree, and so we are uh, doing uh, additional detail in how billing, what kind of billing is allowed, et cetera. Who can be billed, who can't, that sort of thing. And and that bill, we've done the preliminaries. We have lots and lots of comments. We're going through them. We're approaching the final rule, and I'm I'm hoping it will be out this fall. The reason why I don't know is it's not because of any real substantive issue, but it takes a lot of legal work to make sure we do everything right and and answer all the comments but because we've got very constructive comments from all sides i i will say that this industry critical though i may be a part of it is always very constructive and you know gives us a lot to think about on these rules so we're so that is coming out but it's not quite out yet when you are formulating these rules or you
1: looking obviously they'll affect international companies shipping itself obviously is totally international to what degree do you speak to your counterparts in China, competition watchdogs? There, they're the, the, the three big jurisdictions. Do you need a, a degree of consensus
0: or do you just go on alone and hope that they fall in line? So, this is how I put it. And I, I agree with you. And I'm not trying to like put us at but, it, but in terms of you've got the United States, you've got the European Union, and you've got China. And the three of us have to have systems, I would say, that are compatible. You cannot run ocean shipping around the world if you have to change ships in the mid-Atlantic, right? It just doesn't work, or in the mid-Pacific. So we have a formal discussion every two years. We call it a trilateral. The last one was virtual. I think that was a little bit, because of COVID, it was a little bit challenging. We are due to have another one. There's no schedule on that yet. So we do try to talk, all three of us at the same meeting. In terms of bilateral contacts, we do have bilateral contacts. I definitely have more uh, with Europe right now for a variety of reasons. For instance, I was in Brussels just a few months ago and meeting with their DG Comp. I also sometimes meet with their uh, director for transport too. But you know, the competition is where we really come, and I think it's it's similar. You know, when I was in the just in the UK for London Shipping Week, uh, meeting with the UK government, I was sort of saying, "Look, you don't have to do things exactly the way the EU did. Of course, right? You left the EU, but it's very important that it be compatible in some antitrust." senses and in some other senses so that you don't, you know, turn off shipping. And, and they were very open to that, that comment. I don't think they were surprised at all. So that is what we try to do. And it is important to talk to all of our counterparts. And, and at least on this level, on the commercial regulation of ocean shipping, there is a lot in common. Obviously, in Europe, they keep a very close eye on, and this is coming
1: up very soon, about exemptions for ocean carriers, container shipping lines from competition law. In the US, there has been talk of an Ocean Shipping Antitrust Enforcement Act which would repeal the exemption for foreign ocean carriers from all US federal antitrust laws. Since that was proposed, there's been quite a lot of changes. I mean, I'll throw out a few there. We've had the breakup of the 2M Alliance, the collapse of rates, the massive orders that you've referenced quite a few times, which you see an excess supply as opposed to excess demand. Has this proven to those legislators who are quite bullish on this, that if there is collusion by container lines, it's not being managed very well?
0: Yeah, I know. Um, in, in a word, not exactly. But look, as you mentioned, I was a member of Congress and the sponsor of that particular legislation, at least in the last Congress, is a good dear friend of mine, right? We argue about wine because we did have wine in New York and he thinks no good wine comes from anywhere but his district in California. But in any event, the the point though is that I disagree with a full repeal for a variety of reasons. There's reasons also for him though to introduce it anyway as a a starting point and it's kind of a a shot across the bow. So I don't blame them for that. In terms of what actually happens though, getting rid of the the exemption altogether, you know, would threaten the alliances, it would even threaten a lot of slot sharing agreements. And it's a little complicated, but that actually could lead to less competition. And the reason is if you look at a, a medium sized port, say Oakland, you can have more services because different carriers can share the same ship again. If they're colluding on the price, then that is not good. But none of their agreements under the current exemption allow them to do that. That would be a matter for the Justice Department, by the way, if they did, not us. So if they can share these slots, though, they can both offer service on the same ship. Okay, what happens if you get rid of that? They can't share the slots. Well, are they going to get service? You could say, of course, they're going to serve it. Oakland is so important. The U.S. is so important. They'll just send two ships. Well, the problem with sending the two ships is then you're polluting almost twice as much because in, you know two these smaller container ships flew almost as much as twice as much as one larger one. So that's not good, it's also not really realistic. Of course, they're not gonna send twice as many ships, they will send less ships and the service will go down. Either way, you're a loser, Californians are losers, so that's not the way to go. However, I do support and I do think that we should have strengthened authority All the burden of proof, you know, to prove an alliance has gone off the rails. It lies with us. And I don't, I think that's a little bit unbalanced. So there are proposals to reform the the exemption. Another area is, uh, and it doesn't, it's not just ocean carriers too. It's it's the port authorities and terminals and other kinds of entities. And, you know, Once they make one of these agreements, they can stay in effect forever. I think there should be a sunset date or you have to renegotiate or something like that. So there's a number of those kind of reforms that I think would give us the leverage that the members of Congress are looking for, regardless of the market, without a full repeal. But I will say, I don't think those are going anywhere this Congress. I think that the Ocean Shipping Reform Act last year was one of the things, and they want to see how that, for the most part, the leaders want to see how that works and then move on to the next thing.
1: As I mentioned earlier, you sit on the White House Competition Council. Which means you meet President Biden twice a year. Now, the headline quote for the council from President Biden is this capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. Without healthy competition, big players can change and charge whatever they want and treat you however they want. Now, flight of fancy here, but I sort of like the idea of you sitting down talking away with President Biden about the transparency and competitiveness of liner companies. Does this come up? I mean, do you chat about the Ever Given? Does he ask you about the Aponte family and MSC <laughs>
0: or do you stick to EU competition rules? Uh, not directly. Um, When I did meet in Geneva with the, the Aponte family, they asked me about him, uh, but not so much the other way around. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you whenever I do have a conversation direct one-on-one with the president, we usually talk about my hometown of Syracuse, New York, which is where he went to law school and where his now deceased wife is from. So. He's got a lot, uh, a, a lot of interest there. But in terms of uh, professional stuff, look, it's all about competition. The Competition Council focuses on sort of the broader themes. One of those things that they're taking on that I think is a great thing to take on is the is sort of what's called, we call sort of junk fees. These are like endless ATM fees or those things on your like your cable bill in the US. I don't know if this works same way in in the UK, but where you know you you got like you have to pay this. You have to you have to pay for a, a box TV set box, even though you don't need the box. I mean, all sorts of things like that. And believe it or not, there's that notion shipping too. It doesn't directly affect consumers, but it certainly indirectly does because it affects shippers. Things like you know congestion surcharges when the entire year is considered congested, or it was once a, a value added fee. You couldn't figure out what whether they were like gift wrap, wrapping the container. We, we don't know. Just these weird fees that pop up on shippers' bills. And look, again, we don't regulate anymore what the The rate is what the if you make a contract rate, that negotiation. They can charge whatever they can come up with that's then that is agreed to. But what we don't want is some fee that lacks the transparency that is just piling onto the rate. And so, in that sense, the competition council themes that you know that the FCC deals with with cable bills and the uh, you know, and the airline the dot deals with 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 weird airline bills. We actually have a piece of that. And so I'm glad to be part of that council. But no, you know, the president hasn't yet come up to me and said, I want you to explain all the intricacies of modern uh, container shipping. I assume he already knows because he's from Delaware.
1: I don't think you're telling me the truth there, Daniel. I've, I think he's fascinated
0: by peak season surcharges. <laughs> anyway. You might be surprised how much of a wonk he is, but uh, he does have uh, he does have other other things to be concerned about. And, and frankly, look, we are an independent body, um, but he did pick me as chair. And I, I hope and believe that when we have these, ex- these special agencies like mine, like the FCC and uh, the SEC and those sort of things that they do trust the professionals, not so much the appointees, but the professionals that advise us and really have worked with this industry sometimes for decades and decades.
1: Thank you, Daniel. We'll move on to something slightly different. As you told my colleague, Alex, Lane, an excellent interview listeners can find on the The FMC's latest initiative is to name and shame non-compliant NVOCCs, those that don't publish a tariff in line with commission regulations. Can you please explain how this
0: works and the thinking behind its implementation? I mean, again, we're not interested in putting people out of business that are are doing business well. We want to keep competition, but we're looking for compliance because we have to make sure that folks are registered, that, that we know where they are, that there's a level playing field, right? That one NBOCC can't get away with something. And then their competition, which is doing the right thing and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, essentially is punished for it because they have to compete with someone who's not playing by the rules. So this is sort of a way, like I said, shaming, right? We're, we're not trying to put you out of business. We're trying to get you into compliance. And that's what it is. And I think that covers it.
1: Is the same philosophy behind your ideas around data? You launched a new initiative in July. And correct me if if I've understood it incorrectly, if that makes any sense whatsoever. It's about a major shakeup of the collection and return of containers. And your plan is to prevent the sorts of breakdowns we saw during the pandemic, particularly by getting people along the supply chain to share this data more freely. How do you bring all these international parties together that would be involved in this to make it work? And are you expecting to have some firm proposals soon that you might be able to implement?
0: um so one of the advantages of being uh, of having five independent commissioners is that we can kind of do individual projects and so when if you're talking about one of our core like core things so this is different from the significantly different from the NBOCC like where, where our core regulation that our the professional staff spends by far the bulk of its time on and we do as a commission together and we have votes on it I believe the commission can do other things to improve the supply chain, both as a commission and as individual commissioners because of our, we know the industry, we know the player, mostly we know the players in this industry and we have convening authority, convening power, if you will. So we have a couple of commissioners working on things that involve various kinds of information. Of course, you know about Carl Benzel and the data initiative. Again, that is not an FMC. There has been no FMC consensus on that. There has been a vote to put it out for comment because we wanna learn more. And I'm very pleased with the fact that that Carl has done so much good research and come up with some interesting suggestions. So we're we're looking at that. Rebecca Dye now is doing some very interesting work with trying to figure out exactly how we can better predict when a ship is gonna be ready for exports, you know, the ERDs, it's the stuff that drives exporters in this country nuts and a variety of other kinds of it, pieces of information like that, how we can do it better. I think it's a different and complementary approach with some of the stuff that Benzel is doing. We've got another commissioner that works with trying to make the cruise industry better. We got another commissioner that's working on uh, the competitiveness of US ports. So we're all doing these things, but it, but it is true that when they start as an informal commissioner project, it's, it's probably not going to lead to policy quite as quickly. Um, and part of the challenges is that these are complex problems. They do cover probably more than just our agency. And frankly, I'm not sure if government is the right solution to a lot of them. It may be that the private sector. And so we use our convening authority to look into it and then try to find solutions that may not be evident simply if we you know if we follow just the, the simple rule book of the things that we, you know, the exact particular things we regulate.
1: Can we just finish up on a sort of general question? I strongly suspect you might not put it the same way as me, but was the pandemic good for the supply chain and global trade, at least in terms of how it's viewed in the US in boardrooms and Congress, in the sense that it brought home the importance of the companies that do this difficult business and the tough job that regulators like yourself have? Or is it all the other way around and now there's too many cooks in
0: the kitchen most of whom can't boil an egg in, in supply chain terms at least i used to be in congress i used to be used to getting covered because of all sorts of big issues i came to the federal maritime commission and frankly it was like a breath of fresh air to be able to focus on the substance of something yes it's you know you have a very a fairly narrow space that's extraordinarily important to 90% of the stuff that comes in the us um and and the the overall economy So that was great, but we didn't get much attention to it. And I know people have worked in the industry for decades whose families had zero interest in what they did and had no idea. Suddenly, boom, supply chain is a household term, wasn't before. You've got all sorts of uh, people concerned and interested and understand that there are container ship ports someplace anyway. So in that sense, there was some good that came out of a bad situation, but no, overall, I think that the pandemic was not good for anything, frankly, but it was certainly a wake-up call. It taught us some lessons, and we're still learning those lessons and trying to figure out how to make things better. And I will also say this. If we think the pandemic is the last major disruption, of course, we're wrong, right? We know that there's going to be additional, if not more frequent disruptions that, that the swings in supply and demand. I mean, talking to ocean shipping executives and, you know, he's used to talk about, like, don't predict the future after five years. Well, now don't predict the future after five months. Yes. I think that the, the demand bubble burst faster than we thought, and it may come back faster than we thought. We just don't know. In the U.S., we're somewhat insulated from the direct impact of the Ukraine war, but there's all sorts of geopolitical events, and of course, there's this thirty-seven billion metric tons per day gorilla in the room that is going to affect ocean shipping and the cost of ocean shipping tremendously. So in this context, I don't take this position lightly to the extent that we can bring any certainty at all to any part of this, any rules-based to strengthen sort of rules-based system to underpin the market. That's going to be more and more needed because being a shipper today is basically being a risk mitigator for your, uh, for your company.
1: As you say, there's plenty of risks out there. Would you think it would be fair to say that US shippers, importers and exporters are now more protected... Than they've ever been, or maybe better protected than shippers elsewhere in the world.
0: I will certainly say that they have more, both perceived and actual recourse. I think a lot of them felt that you know if they were wrong, there was really nothing they could do. They just had to pay the charge. Okay, maybe they could bring a case, but that would cost a lot of money. And now they've seen some real impact, and our caseload shows it. Right, that that people are now coming to the FMC both informally, you know, we have a strong consumer affairs department and formally sometimes filing complaints themselves, sometimes filing a complaint with our um, investigations. Again, a lot of things get solved fairly quickly. I think we give an incentive for the companies to do that. So in that sense, I think there's, or there's a lot more things. And as we do more like our, you know, we're also coming out with a rule that will give a little more comfort to exporters, I believe, who, uh, particularly ag exporters who w- were concerned during the pandemic that their exports would be left on shore simply because the shipping company, the the carrier wanted to get the container back to Asia faster, didn't want to lose any opportunity cost because it, it basically imports, they were making so much more money on imports than exports. This will give some comfort to them. So I do think there's more of that, but look, it's it's still a risky business. It's still a challenging game, and I think the fact that I can acknowledge that and I talk to shippers, I, I think that makes me better at what I do than if I just sort of said, "Oh yeah, I have, everything is solved." No, no, no. This is difficult. We're we're never going to get to a point where we've solved all the issues. But again, if we can at least address some of those main ones and and make sure that there's a basic level of behavior that we expect from the carriers to do business in the U.S. And believe me, I they want them if they say, "Look, if you if you're clear, you FMC are clear." we will comply. Now, does that mean they always will, you know? No, no, you trust but verify, right? Uh, As as Ronald Reagan said. But the fact is, is that I do think that the, again, that the industry is needed and we regulate an industry. The competition is less than it used to be, but it is still there. And that is what shippers are looking for. So yes, a lot better than it was, but still a long way to go.
1: Daniel Maffey, Chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar Podcast.
0: Mike, it's been my pleasure as well.
1: I'd like to thank TAC, Index and Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.